It's always true. It seems the older I get, the more I prepare to preach, the more I realize um, my awful failures and my inadequacies and how I fall short. And then we come to the subject of pastoral care, and you just go, ugh. And that's how we feel when we approach it. And we must. We must feel that way because we have failed. We are sinners, and we depend on God for his strength to do our work. And that's certainly how I feel this morning as I approach the the question of discipline. And so let me start by reading to you a very, very familiar passage, very short. You don't have to turn there. You know it. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Not long ago, I was looking on the Internet for mission statements for churches, And I found that many churches had, as a mission statement, they took the Great Commission. Now, I'm sorry, I get mission statements and vision statements and tax statements that churches have. They have all these different categories of statements, and it's. I think they are starting to leave this nonsense now. But the reality is we have all that stuff on, have had all that stuff on there. So I would look at these statements, and I would see them talking about the Great Commission, and it wasn't uncommon... It actually happened that some churches would end the commission with what? They'd go through a certain part listed on their site, and it would stop with what? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And that's where they would end. And, of course, they were leaving off something very important, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And so we sing the Ten Commandments and we see the commands of God put before us. And we have Jesus who comes and he says, this is the law, summed up. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Many churches leave off the reality of observing all, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you because they realize that it's, it's upping the ante. It's raising the stakes. I've told some of you before I was visiting a friend at a large vineyard church in Cincinnati, and as we were talking, he was taking me through their, their new sanctuary, and we were up in the balcony looking down on this. It wasn't a $30 million building like the one we went up to in Noblesville recently, but it was a very expensive building, very, very nice. And they had a lot of bells and whistles. And we're looking down where the people uh, meet and at the platform down in front. And he, we're talking. He's talking about the difficulties going on in their church. They've got five or 6,000 people attending. They, he didn't talk about it, but they have a lot of competition from another mega church, seeker-sensitive church in town, and they were really pressing on them. You know, McDonald's started across the street. And as we're talking, he's, he's talking about He's, he's starting to lament the fact that they're not making disciples. He's saying, we need, to start, we need to start over. We need to start changing something. We're not making disciples. We realize that all we're doing is we're imparting information. 
people are getting information, but they're not becoming disciples. So we talked about it for a while longer. Finally, I looked at him and I said, you know, do you think perhaps the missing element is discipline? Now, at the time, we were already walking back toward the office complex, and I said the word discipline, and he just like, What do you mean by that? It's a dirty word to say discipline in many places. What do you mean by that? I said, well, you know, Matthew 18 kind of stuff. You know, if your brother sins, you go to him. If he doesn't listen to you, you take one or two others. You go to him if he doesn't listen to them. So we talked about that for a little while, and he said, well, you know, I think that might be it. I think that might be what, what we're missing. I don't know if they did anything about what the conversation. I don't know if he was just, you know, making me happy by agreeing so that I feel good because I didn't have a 5,000 flock, you know, that I was working with or whatever. But, but he did agree with me, and we went and went our separate ways. What do we mean by discipline? What do we mean? Discipline is discipleship. It is teaching them to obey all that Christ has commanded, all that God has commanded. For many churches, when they hear the word discipline, it's only one kind of thing. Many churches, when they hear the word discipline, there's only one thing that they can think of for it. And it's excommunication. That's it. Uh, We think about formal censure in a church that an elders board can give to someone in a formal formal way. And we certainly would look at excommunication as a form of formal censure. But there are other forms of formal censure that can be given to people. But for many churches, there isn't anything that's seen intentionally below excommunication. And so that's all they think of. That's, what all, that comes out of, that's all that comes out of their minds when you say the word. The problem is that excommunication is what you have when all other disciplinary appeals have failed. When everything else is done and everything else has failed, then you have excommunication. Then you trust God by implementing the most drastic of censures. That's the most drastic thing we have the ability to do. And so this morning I'm, I'm tasked with addressing discipline as pastoral care. And I want to start by us thinking, as we were planning this conference, actually, more than a year ago, we were talking about these things. And Stephen still has the handwritten notes from that time. And as we were talking about it, we realized that this conference could easily have been called the work of a pastor is discipline. Because everything that David has talked about, that Stephen has talked about, that Tim will talk about, has to do with the work we do in what could be understood making disciples. We are working. We are disciplining people. Think for a moment about the work of a shepherd. How many of you ever had any background in farming? Yes, I know we all did. Okay. About six or seven of us. We didn't raise sheep, but I know that Lots of things can be understood by reading about somebody who raised sheep. We raised other animals, and there were a lot of similarities between the two. But here's the thing. What does a shepherd do with the sheep? I mean, what is his work with the sheep? He takes the sheep somewhere, and he says, Eat this, sheep. 
Or he sees the sheep going into a certain part of the pasture and he says, don't eat that sheep. And he knocks them away. He's walking along and he says, move sheep. He wants them to stop and he says, stop sheep. Right? Go left, go right, lay down, have some water, take your medicine, take care of your young. And that's all the shepherd does. It's constantly, constantly the work of directives, 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 commands, commands, commands. It's not seen that way because he doesn't say what I just said. You don't see a man saying to the sheep, eat that sheep, right? Pastoral care is discipline. Discipline is pastoral care. There are two main obstacles to our giving pastoral care to the flock. The second obstacle, which I'm not going to talk much about this morning, is the flock. We're not going to worry about that because uh, many of us see this obstacle very, very well. We can parse and analyze postmodernism all day long. You know, if I sit down with Michael, he can just, let me talk about postmoderns. And he'll pull them apart. And you'll see like a jigsaw puzzle that Michael took apart and then he puts it back together. This is postmoderns. All right? We can do that. We know their problems. We know how they're not going to respond to what we would do for them. We know that they're an obstacle. The problem isn't with the sheep. There is a problem. The primary problem isn't with the sheep, and that's not what I want to talk about this morning. I want to talk about the primary obstacle. The primary obstacle is with us. The primary obstacle is with the shepherds. And so, I want to illustrate this with a conversation I had recently with one of the men in this room. And it was an interesting conversation. And there were four of us, I think, or five present. And one participant said something like, well, as we try to grow our circle of influence, how do we go about having conversations with people about the need today for pastoral care? I want you to listen to that again. As we try to grow our circle of influence... How do we go about having conversations with people about the need today for pastoral care? How do we do that? Now, what's wrong with that statement? It's as if the sheep need us to teach them that they need us. And that's not what we need. What we need is not conversations about pastoral care. What we need is pastoral care. And so the problem isn't with them learning about what they need. The problem is with us giving them what they need. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, Matthew 9, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Can you imagine Jesus going up to the distressed, dispirited people and saying, have you noticed that uh, there's a dearth of workers who are willing to address your obvious need for shepherding? Now, 
Do you think there's a better way to describe our friends, families, neighbors, and co-workers today than to say they are distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd? They are absolutely so. Do we have to get our assessment of our work from Michael Savage? I don't know anything about Michael Savage. I found this quote, and then I looked up Michael Savage. How many of you listen to Michael Savage? You're ashamed, aren't you? You won't raise your hand. Now that I've read about him, I know why. But here's what he says. He says, um, America's churches and synagogues are filled with parishioners who are screaming for preachers and pastors and rabbis to speak the truth, and they're not getting it. They're just getting mumbo-jumbo. They don't get the true stuff that they're going to the churches for. He's right. He's right. Before we can give pastoral care, we must first address obstacle one. And so we have talked about Baxter's reformed pastor. Baxter uses Acts 20.28 as the locus around which he constructs his primer for pastors. This is it. Okay? And so he uses Acts 20.28. Stephen read this morning from this passage, and I just want to read that section around which uh, Baxter, verse 28, Paul's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, verse 27, verse 26, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. The, the book, The Reformed Pastor, is divided into three parts. One is the oversight of ourselves, the, other, the second is the oversight of the flock, and the third is the application of those, of those things. And under part two of application, the, the, the part called the duty of personal instruction, Baxter lists nine objections to the duty as voiced by the clergy of his day. Now, what were these men objecting to? What were they saying no to? They were saying no to taking responsibility for pastoral care. That's what they were saying no to. They did not want to take responsibility. That's where it all boils down. You know, I'm trying to think. I told David, uh, David uh, Wagener before the sermon. He asked me what my verse was. He asked me different things. And the thing is, you know, yesterday I think, David, you had four Ps. Was that kind of how it was? But there were four points. I can't remember. I thought they all started with P, but that doesn't matter. There were only three, okay? And Stephen this morning in Stephen's style had three groups of four, six, and five, right? Well, my style is I have one. And Tim says I grab it in my teeth and I shake it until everybody's sick. So here you go. These men were objecting because they did not want to take responsibility for pastoral care. They didn't want to be responsible. They didn't want to make disciples because they knew what the cost was going to be. Last night, David was lamenting the lack of pastoral care. He more specifically lamented the lack of pastors 
We responded to liberalism with the parachurch, is what he said. We've responded to the parachurch with the mega and corporate church. We've responded to the corporate church with the third wave church. And our response to the third wave church is a divided camp between Brian McLaren and Mark Driscoll. Okay? And that's where we are now. Every single iteration since Bill Bright was born has lacked the working of discipline in pastoral care. Every single one. Now we are postmodern, parachurch, corporate posers who don't believe in anything but an imminence where Jesus is everyone's boyfriend and we are either finding ourselves back at liberalism or we're sure that the Acts 29 train will still pay off with a bitchin' church for us. And that's where we sit. And we have no interest in the duties of pastoral care. And so Baxter goes through these objections, and I'm going to go through them. I'm not going to talk about his responses, because you're going to, you're going to see some of those as I go along. But I'm going to try to read what he says. It's, it's quite short. So there are nine things, so I do have nine. But I'm going to read what he said. It's short. And then I'm going to give a response in how we hear it today somewhat. And you'll have to think about it. Objection one. We teach our people in public. And how then are we bound to teach them man by man besides? And Stephen addressed this in the first sermon this morning. I am perfectly perspicuous. Did I pronounce that right? Beautiful. I am perfectly perspicuous. A golden-tongued wonder. They couldn't possibly need more from me. And we think that way because it's a way to think to keep us from doing the work we're supposed to do. And we're proud. Objection two, as Baxter Reed writes, all the parish are not the church, nor do I take the pastoral charge of them. And therefore, I am not satisfied that I am bound to take these pains with them. Okay, so, and it's different today. We'll have to define the parish as something different. We'll call them the non-members, the people in the community. If non-members want any of my time, they're going to have to give us a good deal on snow plowing in the church parking lot. Don't come to me to do your father's funeral. When have I ever seen you in church before? I have enough work to do. And I'm telling you, we think mercenary thoughts when they come to us. I do. And so will you if you don't already. Objection three, this course will take up so much time that a man will have no opportunity to follow his studies. Most of us are young and inexperienced and have the need of much time to improve. Being translated means, don't bother me. I'm reading up so that I can get a job at a seminary training pastors. I know somebody who's given me this conversation. Never worked as a pastor, never had any experience as a pastor, has absolutely no gift as a pastor, and, and, and wants to be a, 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 a seminary professor so that he can train pastors. And he's talking to me about it. And I'm just looking at him like, what planet are you from? 
Objection four. But this course will destroy the health of our bodies by continual spending our spirits and allowing us no time for necessary recreations. And it will wholly lock us up from friendly intercourse with others so that we must never stir from home nor enjoy ourselves a day with our friends for the relaxation of our minds. But as we shall seem uncourteous, courteous and morose to others, so we shall tire ourselves and the bow that is always bent will be in danger of breaking at last. Translated, my kids got a soccer game. They call on the phone. I'm in the hospital. Annie, I'm tired. I'm tired. I didn't get to have a good meal today. Just been running and a salad, right? And I wanted to watch the season finale of Lost. And we haven't been intimate in three weeks. You guys know intimate? No. And it's the hospital. And it never fails. It seems to happen always the night when I'm suddenly going to have to preach the next morning. And I don't have my sermon. And... And I'm exhausted, and, and I'm thinking to myself, I'll do the thing I do. I'll stay up all night, and then the hospital. Objection five. I do not think that it is required of ministers that they make drudges of themselves if they preach diligently and visit the sick and perform other ministerial duties and occasionally do good to those they converse with I do not think that God doth require that we should thus tie ourselves to instruct every person distinctly and to make our lives a burden and a slavery. I didn't know how to translate this because I'm going to be talking about this later. This is the, this is the focus, I think, for us. But the thing I'm thinking is we, what we'd say here today is preach something encouraging. Preach about grace. Preach about grace. Preach something encouraging. Don't be a drudge. Preach something encouraging. Objection six. The times that Paul lived in required more diligence than ours. The churches were but in the planting, the enemies many, and persecution great. But now it is not so. And that translated, according to 2 Timothy 3.12, is... I do not desire godliness. That's what that means. Because the promise is everyone who desires to be godly in Christ will be persecuted. Objection 7. But if you make such severe laws for ministers, the church will be left without them. For what man will choose such a toilsome life for himself? Or what parents will impose such a burden on their children? Men will avoid it, both for the bodily toil and the danger to their consciences if they should not well discharge it. You know, all I could think of here was the guy on the union line who's saying, you're working too fast. So the guy next to him, slow down, you're working too fast. You're making us all look bad, right? Objection eight. But to what purpose is all this when most of the people will not submit? They will not come to us to be catechized and will tell us that they are now too old or too old to go to school. 
and therefore it is better to let them alone as trouble them and ourselves to no purpose. And I would say we, we, when we think of this, the, the modern way to say it is uh, it's too modest an undertaking for somebody with my gift set. That's, that's beneath me. That's beneath me. Old people, and most of them won't listen, and will have to work very, very modestly, very, very humbly. Objection nine. But what likelihood is there that men will be converted by this means, who are not converted by the preaching of the word? When that is God's chief ordinance for that end, faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the preaching of the word. Absolutely true. And how do we respond to that today? And this is a classic one we hear today all the time. I don't need to know them. It is, after all, the Holy Spirit's job to preach to the conscience and not mine. And we hear that all the time. All the time. And so we have no application in our sermons, but we certainly have no discipleship with people. In near 400 years, not much has changed. The objection that Baxter is hardest on is number five, and that is the drudgery of our our lives and being enslaved to our duties. And it's here in objection five, in the context of it, that Baxter laments an unconverted clergy. He starts talking about the clergy of his day, and he starts lamenting the fact that they're not Christians at all. And so this is what he says. And I'm sorry. I'll try to read it well. But I think we need to hear it. Of what use and weight the duty is, I have showed before, this is Baxter's response to being the objection that we're going to be drudges. I have showed before in how plainly it is commanded. And do you think God doth not require you to do all that good you can? Will you stand by and see sinners gasping under the pangs of death and say, God doth not require me to make myself a drudge to save them? Is this the voice of Christian or ministerial compassion? Or rather, is it not the voice of sensual laziness and diabolical cruelty? Doth God set you work to do, and will you not believe that he would have you do it? Is this the voice of obedience or of rebellion? It is all one whether your flesh prevail with you to deny obedience, to to acknowledge duty, and plainly say, I will obey no further than it pleaseth me, or whether it may make you willfully reject the evidence that should convince you that it is a duty and say, I will not believe it to be my duty unless it pleases me. It is the character of a hypocrite to make a religion to himself of the cheapest part of God's service which will stand with his fleshly ends and felicity and to reject the rest which is inconsistent therewith. And to the words of hypocrisy, this objection superaddeth the words of gross impiety. For what a wretched calumny, slander, is this against the Most High God, to call his service a slavery and drudgery? What thoughts have such men of their master, their work, and their wages, the thoughts of a believer or an infidel? Are these men like to honor God, to promote his service, that have such base thoughts of it themselves? Do these men delight in holiness, that account it a slavish work, 
Do they believe indeed the misery of sinners that account it as such a drudgery to be diligent to save them? Christ saith that he, he that denieth not himself and forsaketh not all and taketh not up his cross and followeth him cannot be his disciple. But these men counted a slavery to labor hard in his vineyard and to deny their ease at a time when they have all accommodations and encouragements. How far is this from forsaking all? And how can these men be fit for ministry who, can such enmities to, who, can, who are such enemies of self-denial and so true and so to true Christianity. I am therefore forced to say that hence arises the chief misery of the church, that so many are made ministers before they are Christians. I'm not going to judge his being a Christian or not a Christian, but people are looking for answers. They're looking for people who believe. And Jesus is saying that no one is believing unless they are denying themselves, taking up their cross daily, and following me. And so we look across our nation at, at men, and we see Larry King interviewing Rick Warren and... and and saying to Rick Warren what we've talked about before, many of us, Katrina wipes out New Orleans. What was that all about, Rick? Well, that was so God's people could learn how to give away water. But wait a minute, Rick. I mean, it was a, quite a big wind. And it made quite a mess. What about that? Well, you know, Larry... There's a lot of people who didn't know how to give away water, and boy, what an opportunity. We really learned how to give away water. It was great. But the wind, Rick, who was in the wind? No response. No response. The work, the reproach, that Rick Warren would have received and therefore the work he would have had to undergo and undertake in responding in a way he should have responded. It's here that we find so many of our own failures and weaknesses. You know, we've taught, them, we've taught men here using the analogy of medicine. Stephen referred to it, but one of the things we talk about is doctor's charts, right? And so Adam, he's a doctor, and Adam has a hundred people that he's dealing with. And you know Adam, he's smart. He has everything in his brain. He knows exactly what medical uh, treatments they've had. He knows exactly uh, what their prescription levels are, what kinds of medicines they're taking. It's all right there because Adam is smart. It's all right there, right, Adam? Right here. Now, Adam keeps charts. And when, he, when he, he does, though, retain those things, and when he sees people from time to time, he remembers certain things about them, and the charts open up in his mind, even though he doesn't have them memorized. 
And he starts to approach the person, and he starts to remember, and he starts to deal with the issue with them. Well, listen, pastors keep charts. Some men with giftedness have charts in their minds, and they, they're so uh, connected to the work of pastoral care that when they walk into the room, they are, com- they are instantly bombarded by the charts opening up as they see every person in the room, the sea of faces. And they say, boom, 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 Mary, John, Fred, George, you know, uh, marriage problem, you know, sexual temptation, you know, uh, uh, same-sex temptation. And just open up all the charts. But that's not our general problem. Our general problem isn't that we walk into a room and, the, and we're bombarded by charts and we're trying to still all of the voices so that we can work. Our general problem is we make sure that none of the charts open. And when we walk into a room, we make sure that we talk about something that wouldn't possibly lead to us remembering the problems and the difficulties and the distresses and the dispiritedness of any particular sheep. Because we don't want the work of it. We don't want the difficulty of it. We don't want to be the drudge. Responsibility, responsibility, responsibility. We don't want it. No thank you very much. A pastor with no personal responsibility for anyone has actually a different title. He's a chaplain. He's a chaplain. Chaplains don't pastor. Chaplains preside. They come into rooms. They preside at certain times over weddings, over funerals, in hospital rooms. They come in and preside. But there is never the work of discipline, discipleship in what they're doing. Remembering what Stephen read earlier. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. Night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. You know, if I stay up till 11 o'clock with people and then have an early morning, if I have a long counseling session, I want to be free. I want to get away from it. Night and day with tears for three years? He did not stop? It's because the people were the problem, right? The first and greatest obstacle to pastoral care is us. It's us. Do you think that God's incapable of producing sheep that will hear his voice? Do you think that? No. My sheep hear my voice and follow me. God makes sheep to hear his voice all the time. But there's nobody there to tell them what he's saying. Nobody willing to take responsibility for it. Matthew 18, verses 12 to 20. What do you think? 
If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go to search for the one that is straying? If it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine which had not gone astray. So it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more of you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall, be of, shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall been, have been loosed in heaven. Again I say to you that if two, or, two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Matthew 18. We're all familiar with it, right? It's the favorite chapter for many pastors. This is what I found out in my life. It's, it's many pastors' favorite chapter. It really is. You would not believe how many pastors have quoted it to me. It must be their favorite chapter. It just comes quickly to them. The pastor's favorite verse. Well, you know, the worldlings have a favorite verse, and that is, judge not lest you be judged. The evangelicals have a favorite verse, and that is, judge not lest you be judged. Right? The emergence favorite verse, but Jesus stooped down with his finger and wrote on the ground. It could be as good as any, right? Kind of art in it. Matthew 18, though. Discipline. How we discipline. What we're supposed to do. So let's pretend. One pastor decides to take responsibility for his brother. So what does taking responsibility for your brother's sins look like? Well, it means it looks like you going to your brother and saying... One word, one syllable, two letters, going to your brother and saying, No. This is pastoral care. Saying no. We used to say that here, here to, that to be faithful, you had to say God's yes and his no, both corporately and personally. I still believe that. But the problem is that in an antinomian age, Yes is incomprehensible without the baseline. Just like grace is incomprehensible without the law, without the thundering and the weight of judgment. Without Sinai's heaviness hanging over you. When does the experienced musician hear yes? Jody? Yeah, yeah. What, what, is, what are you told all, your, all through your youth? What were you told? I want to go play ball. Maybe you didn't. What are you told? Uh, I want to go play with my friends. I want to watch Tarzan. Right? And what are you told? No. 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 So that one day you will be able to have yes. 
And you can take that fiddle and And then you understand. And it's discipline. At this point, we need to have a pamphlet available to the young pastor. You know, kind of a survival manual. And I'm thinking the title is, So You've Told Somebody No. Right? And you open it up. Here, the weight of pastoral responsibility begins to descend. You are now the killjoy, the drudge, the authoritarian monster. You're now the bully, the meddler, the judge, and the one who is... Who does he think he is? I don't want to be called the bully. It hurts. There are so many ways for us to say no. You don't have to use the word. Can I spank your baby for you? You see, that's saying no, isn't it? Here's a, nice, here's a nice large T-shirt for you to cover your exposed parts with. Seriously. I will not solemnize your marriage without her vow to obey. Saying no. You know, we, we're, we don't want to say no. Instead, what we want is that we want to someone to like our latest status update. That's what we want. We want to be liked. But the sheep are distressed and dispirited and lacking a shepherd. They will like you if you take responsibility for them and die for them. They will love you. They know, Mike, when you're building, you have plans, right? Which are the really important plans? In the construction trailer, which ones are the really, really important ones? What's that? Yeah, but they're really important. But what if you have three sets of structural plans? Which ones are the important ones? He's told me this, and he knows. They have to have something on them. They have to have what stamp? The engineer's stamp. Listen, Mike knows that the most important set of plans in, in the construction trailer is the structural plans with the engineer's stamp on them. Do you think God's people don't know who are the authentic pastors and who are not? Do you think they don't recognize the authentic stamp of God on his workers? Well, so you go. Then two or three agree together because he didn't listen to you. So you go with, with uh, some brothers to this person. And you have, to, you have to go to them and you have to say, this man is in sin. And they, and they have to agree to take responsibility with you. Are you ready now for the next wave? They have to agree to take responsibility with you. Then you go to the person and you say, no, no, please, no. We're pleading with you. No, we love you. No. And then what does he say? 
Now we have a bully in his gang. Right? Might be what they say. There's the bully and he's got his gang with him this time. Or you go to the church and you come with the church and you go to this person and you say, please, please, we plead with you. No. No. Don't throw away your life. Stop sinning. And they might stop. Or they might say, well, now we've got the bully and his brainwashed mob. And that's the world we live in. Those who do not have God's voice on their ears will have that reaction to his, to his workers and to discipline. We must have the church of the living God with his stamp of authenticity. And this means we must, as pastors, take responsibility and do the work. Be the servant to God. It's a joy. It's a privilege. It's not a drudgery. Our own sin is what causes us to think of it that way. I want to end with John 21, 15 to 19. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my lambs. And he said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Now, of course, you should be hearing, do you love me? Take care of my sheep, right? Do you love me? Take care of my sheep. Do you love me? Take care of my sheep. And, you know, you've heard all kinds of sermons on this probably in your life about this kind of love and all this and this and this and this. But all I want you to think about is what's said next in connection to that. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now, this he said signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Now, shepherds, that's what we're called to. We are called to be responsible and die. That's what we're called to. God has put his call on us. We need to do it. And it is the love of Christ that motivates us to care for the sheep. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we look to you today. I look to you realizing my gross negligence and failure and sin in the work that I've done. I can see it over years, Father, and over hours. Oh, Lord, would you please 
make us into faithful workers for your field. Your sheep are distressed and dispirited. Would you make us to love you by loving them? Would you, would you make our hearts to know and believe with faith that we, that we will live in the reality of the privilege of this work, never thinking of it as drudgery, but seeing it as a joy? Father in heaven, thank you for, your, for the privilege you give us. We pray this in Jesus' name.